Well, again, I do want to say good morning and welcome to you. Thank you for joining us. Want to ask you, go ahead, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 14 together as we continue in our series on Follow Me. And what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We're just going to be a couple more weeks looking at these key roles of what it means to be a disciple. But as we're going to Romans 14, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? Or a you said, I'm going to change something in my life? All right, my guess is most people, if not all of us, have done it. Uh, I'm not going to ask whether you are successful or not, okay? Uh, I, I don't want to be Debbie Downer this morning. Uh, but we, we all find those times where we need to make some changes in our lives uh, for, for whatever reasons. And there are some steps that we could take to be successful. Uh, for me, the first step is always defining why. Why do I need to make this change? What's, what's the purpose of it? Uh, upon arriving at the why, then you set the goal. How do I know if I've actually arrived at where I'm setting out to arrive? From there, I like to work a process backwards. All right, this is where I'm going, and I'm going to work a plan all the way back to where I am so I know the pathway to go there. And and so all of these are good steps. They help you uh, define why and your goal and how to get there and all that good stuff. But there's one step that I will argue that oftentimes is left out and the number one reason most New Year's resolutions or life-changing decisions fail. And it is this, a lack of accountability. You don't have someone in your life who will hold you to make the changes and the choices that you have said, I want to make. Now, This is certainly applicable if you're trying to get healthier, exercise more, eat more, read the Bible, whatever. But ultimately, even for the life of a disciple, having someone hold you accountable is vital for your spiritual growth. I'm going to argue this morning that without accountability, you will not grow to be the disciple that God has called you and in fact created you to be. Now, why would we say that? Well, let's look at it together in the text. Romans chapter 14, uh, because the one big thing this morning is this, that a disciple needs accountability in their life to help them grow now as well as to be prepared to stand before God. So here we are, Romans chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to ask if you're able, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. 
He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, just open up your word, Father, let us humbly come before you, understanding that it is your word, divinely inspired and preserved by your spirit. And now, Father, we ask that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, God, get me out of your way. Help the things that are going to be said and discussed this morning, help them not to be my thoughts and opinions, but truly what the Spirit will lead to be said. That every person, including myself, would hear from you this morning, and that we would respond in worship and obedience because of that great love that you have shown us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing this morning is this, that a disciple needs accountability in their life to help them grow now, as well as to be prepared to stand before God. And so, as we talked about already this morning, we're going to begin with the why. Why is accountability important? And the answer is right there in the second half of that one big thing. Accountability is important because one day we will all stand before God. This is that one day we are going to give an account for our life to the very one who gave us our life. And so there are two groups of people in here, and only two groups. There are those who have surrendered to the grace of Jesus Christ, and they are saved. And those who have not surrendered to the grace of God, and therefore they are still lost in need of turning in faith to Jesus. And each of these groups will be judged differently by God when they stand before him. For a believer, what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.10 is this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive his recompense in body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And so for a believer, we are not standing in judgment before God for our sins, but rather we are standing before God and being judged on our faithfulness to him. Were we obedient to Christ and his teachings? This this is the number one question we have to, to really come to answer. As God has spoken, as, as we read his word and we see what he desires, am I responding in obedience and in love to him? 
if there's no obedience, there's no fruit, it's because we're not connected to the vine. Which means there's no relationship, which means we're still lost. Now, are we going to perfectly obey God? No. We are still sinners who are going to fall short of the glory of God every single day. But there should be a desire in you and I to respond in obedience to what God has said. I mean, after all, if we say that we love Jesus, don't we want to show that? You know, just this, this month, Diane and I got to celebrate our wedding anniversary. Well, if I really love her, am I not going to try to show that to her? I mean, there, there should be some evidence of it. If, if all I do is just go, well, you know I love you, and I don't do the, the things that would demonstrate love to her, how does she really know I love her? And the same is true for our relationship with God. If we say we love him, there ought to be evidence of our life to show that. And so we will be judged and, and given account for our faithfulness to what God has called us to do. For a non-believer, however, it is a very, very different judgment. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. It's known as the great white throne judgment. Here, it is that they will be judged for their works, for everything they said, everything they did, and all their thoughts. And because Scripture teaches that no person is justified by their works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's not of works. The reality is, everyone who stands before God at this judgment, they will experience eternal separation and judgment from God. This is a heavy topic right now. That if you and I believe in heaven, it necessitates a belief in a literal hell but we also have to understand what sends a person to hell or what permits them by grace into God's presence it is the acceptance or the rejection of the gospel a person will not be sent to hell because they are an addict they will not be sent to to hell because they, they ran around and they killed a lot of people. They will be sent to hell because they've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must come to understand there's one thing that permits us into God's presence or there's one thing that will permanently cast us from God's presence. But we must understand, as Paul writes here in Romans 14, the very end of 10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that word all is very unique. And to say it's not unique, all means all, and that's all, all means. So when you read the word all, I want you to think everybody. So everybody's going to stand before God and give an account for something. And the reality is, without accountability, you and I can deceive ourselves. Why? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, For the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, 
it's very easy for us to tell ourselves, well, I must be Christian. Look at this, this, and this. Or I must be Christian because, well, I'm not like those people. It's easy for us to, to say that we are Christian, but the question becomes, what is there in our life that gives evidence of it? This is why James, writing in James 1.22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus would ask this question in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I've commanded you? Where's, where's the obedience in all of these things? It's, again, it's easy for us to say that we are Christian, but if we are Christian, there should be evidence in our lives. We don't do good works in order to be saved. We do these good works because we have been saved. Because I love Jesus Because I'm so grateful for him dying on the cross in my place and making it possible for me to be saved. I want to use my life in whatever platform God gives me. I want to use it not to build myself up, but to make much of Jesus. Whether that's in a pulpit on a Sunday or it's at a ball field with with kids during the week. Our life is not our own. Our life is meant to glorify and magnify the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. And this is vital for you and I to understand that we need accountability because we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Whether you are saved or, or you're still lost right now, we still have that sin nature inside of us. We still struggle with sin and making sure to live a life that honors and glorifies God. And so it is necessary for you and I as a believer, okay, if you've trusted Christ, you need men and women in your life that will come alongside of you and go, you know what, those things that you said doesn't glorify God. You know that, that thing that you did, yeah, that, it's not right. You know that attitude you have about that person or that situation? That doesn't glorify God. We need somebody who will keep our lives in check. And and one of the ways we know that it's ultimately the Holy Spirit that does the convicting of sin and the molding and shaping us into the image of Christ. But one of the ways that the Holy Spirit carries out this ministry is he uses other men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, to draw it into our lives. Men and women who will take us to the word of God and go, you know what? This isn't right. So we know why we need accountability, but the question is, what are the principles of accountability? How do we do this? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just let you know accountability is probably the least used thing Uh, especially within Christianity. But unfortunately, a lot of times when it is used, it's used in the wrong way. My guess is every person in here, as well as people that were at 830, could answer this question. Have you ever been hurt by a church or by a fellow Christian? My guess is every hand would go up. And it's because we have been hurt 
or maybe we hurt somebody that we shy away from wanting to hold others or be held accountable. And this is what we must ask God to remove from us because accountability is necessary. But we want to do it in a Christ-honoring way because we never want to hold somebody accountable to show how holy we are, how spiritual we are, and we certainly don't want to hold somebody accountable just to win an argument. All right, I mean, have you ever met somebody who's just smarter about everything than everybody? Do we really like hanging around those, pre- those people? No. Side note, if you can't think of somebody, I bet somebody's thinking of you. Humility and understanding we need accountability. So how do we do it? Three principles that we're going to extract out of this text. Number one is compassion. All right? It is important that you and I realize this. We are all at a different place in our walk with God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote just two chapters earlier. Chapter 12, verse 3. He says, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly or with sound judgment according to the measure of faith that God has distributed to every man. Within this group of those who have been saved by God's grace, some of you are very spiritually mature. You are are growing and have been growing for a while. Some of you are, are kind of sputtering, and some of you are in the same place spiritually that you were when you first made a profession of faith. Okay, that, it, it's reality. Let's just own it right now. And so we need to understand that every person is in a different place. Notice over and over what Paul says in this, he says, unto the Lord, over and over. If you eat, you're doing it to the Lord. If you're not eating certain things, you're doing it to the Lord. If you hold that one day is more special than another, you're doing it to God. If you're going, nope, every day's alike, you're doing it unto the Lord. And his great summary is this in verse 8. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, or therefore whether we die, we are the Lord's. And so we have to have compassion on one another because maybe you aren't struggling with the sin that another brother or sister is struggling with. But I bet you're struggling with some sin. Because again, every one of us is a sinner by birth and by choice. It is a war that is going on inside of us. Paul lays it out into Romans, the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. So we must be compassionate. Then we also, under compassion, must understand that Christ is the Lord, not us. We have to resist the idea of Christianity being the moral police. All right? We don't just want to teach people how to not smoke or chew or run with those who do. Okay, We want to teach them what it means to love and obey Jesus. Morals doesn't mean saved. A life surrendered to the grace and the lordship of Jesus Christ, that is saved. Now, here's the thing. You can be a moral person and still be lost. 
But you cannot be saved and not be striving for a moral life. But we need to understand what's happening in this text. All right, so Paul is talking about weak Christians and strong Christians. And he's about to flip it upside down on his head. Because, I mean, immediately we think we know what's strong and what weak is. And again, Paul flips this. All right, the weak Christians that Paul's talking about in our text, they're actually Jewish Christians. They're, they are Jewish descendancy. They grew up with the law. They grew up with all the traditions of uh, Judaism and the high holy days and the feast days. And they could eat certain things. They had to avoid things. And Paul is saying that they are weak in the faith because that is a stumbling block of them obeying Christ. They think that I have to trust God's grace, but I have to go and earn God's love. And I would dare say there's probably some people here who are in the same spot. You believe you have to do things in order for God to love you, for God to accept you. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the strong Christians in this text are the Gentile Christians who don't have the, we're going to call it baggage because I don't know what else to call it, the, the baggage that came along with the Jewish Christians. They didn't have special diets. They didn't have special days. And so they're going, okay, it's not a stumbling block. I can worship any day. I can eat anything. And so what's happening here is Paul is encouraging the stronger Christians to have compassion and to help those who are being prevented from walking by faith. This is the call of accountability for a Christian. That you and I are to love one another, that we desire the best for each other. That we want to grow up in Christ together in all that we do. And we have to understand that 95% of Scripture is black and white. All right, how many of you have ever seen those uh, billboards? They're typically in the South. What part of thou shalt not don't you understand? Like, I like those billboards, okay? I, I'm a black and white guy. That's just the way my mind thinks. But you know, there are some things in Scripture that Scripture's silent on. It doesn't specifically address that issue. How do we handle those secondary issues that, if we're honest, are the ones that most happen and cause church fights? We understand that Paul says there is freedom that there is some liberty where the Bible is silent. And so when we see somebody doing something that maybe we don't like, the first question we have to ask is this. Are they breaking a biblical command, or is this a personal preference? Because just because somebody does something that we may not like doesn't mean that it's necessarily sinful. We all do things very differently. Some of them are sinful because Scripture speaks on them. And some of them are just because 
we have some eccentric personalities. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is this really a sin or do I just not like it because it's just not the way I would do it? And if it's just I don't like it because it's not the way I would do it, then Scripture would call me to have compassion on my brother and sister in Christ and go, okay, I'm going to love you and I want to help you. And it's okay. I would really argue that most church divisions and splits happen because of a lack of compassion and a desire to always be right. And this is what we have to avoid if we're going to grow. Because at the end of the day, if you call yourself a Christian, the final and absolute authority in our lives is this book. This is it. Not my opinion on it. Not my thoughts on it. What the Word of God says. This is my authority. The only option I have to speak intelligently on behalf of God is to go, thus saith the Lord. That's it. And so we need to have compassion for each other to go, you know what, we're going to do things a little bit differently. But sometimes it becomes necessary to take it to step number two in accountability, which is confrontation. Now, what I don't mean by confrontation is you going up, getting in their face, yelling at them, and wagging a bony finger at them. Okay? That's not confrontation that we're talking about. What we're talking about in confrontation is going to them privately and going, listen, what you said, what you did, your attitude, it's sinful. Let me show you in Scripture. This is the biblical confrontation that we are to have. Okay? Now, even this confrontation is biblically outlined. That is to first be done privately. Second, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this, speaking the truth in love. Notice there's two aspects of that. Number one, speak the truth. Number two, do it in love. Truth without love is brutality. But love without truth is hypocrisy. We've got to speak the truth and we've got to do it in love. Not because we want to be right, but because we are broken over their sin and we desire the witness of the church to be preserved and protected. The goal of confrontation is, number one, restoration to a right relationship with God. When you and I sin, we break that fellowship with God. God's blessings are no longer on our lives until we confess and turn from our sin to Him. And so our number one goal is always to have a right fellowship with God. And sometimes our sin causes us to hurt somebody else. And so the second part of confrontation would be reconciliation. We want to go and make things right with the person that we've offended. And if you don't have somebody holding you accountable, guess what? You will never see that what you did was wrong. You will never see how 
you have broken fellowship with God and how you have become a stumbling block. It's really what he gets, what Paul gets at towards the end of this text. And so we have to make sure that we are in a right relationship with God and that we are in a right relationship with each other. And so sometimes that requires us to go privately, speaking the truth in love, to a person. And we even have a biblical text of it. You can find it in Galatians chapter 2. Paul talks about an incident he had with Peter. And basically he says that Peter was acting one way when he was around Gentile Christians. And he was acting another way when there were Jews around there. And Paul says, I went and I withstood him to his face. Now again, it doesn't mean he did, made a big spectacle of it. It means that Paul loved Peter enough to go to him and go, Brother, I love you, and in Jesus' name, you're messing up right here. you got to stop. This is what it means to confront in love. It's not about being right. It's about being godly. Now, by show of hands, how many of you here like to be told you're wrong? All right, had the same response in the 830 service. We're batting a thousand. Okay. Does that mean that you're never wrong? No. So what do we do? Well, if you are the person going to the brother or sister, you need to know they're probably not going to react well. They're probably going to get really defensive. They're probably going to call you all sorts of names. And they're not going to like you for a while. That does not excuse you from doing the biblical thing of going and talking to them. Now, let's say somebody is coming to you to point out a sinful word, action, or attitude. How do I view them? I view them as a messenger from God. If they've got scripture with them, by the way, you should always have scripture with you. And they're going, listen, this is what scripture says. This is why what you're saying, doing, or thinking is wrong. How can I pray with you? How can I help you? You need to understand this. Though we do not like to be disciplined by God, it is evidence that we belong to God. See, if you and I can sin and there's no conviction, if we can sin and there is no discipline, the writer of Hebrews says it's because we're an illegitimate child. That is, we're not saved. So while we may not like it, we need to appreciate that God has sent somebody to draw us back to him. And so we need to learn to see that conviction and discipline are for God's glory and our good. And here's the third principle. Confession. Confronting somebody in a sin is not about getting up on my religious high horse and going, ha ha, I'm holier than you are. It is not to win an argument. If you want to go confront somebody just to prove you're right, stay home and stay quiet. The goal of pointing out a sin is confession. That is, what does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God that what I have said, done, or thought is in fact a sin. 
But we don't want to just go, yep, God, you're right, that was wrong. We need to repent or turn away from it and turn to faith in Christ to ask God for his help not to fall into this again. This is the goal of accountability, is to draw confession, to restore a right relationship with God and reconcile a harmed relationship between brothers and sisters. Why? Not just so there's not bad blood between brothers and sisters. But I want us to remember what Jesus said in in the Gospel of John. By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And part of loving one another is holding each other accountable for our lives. When sin goes unchecked in a believer's life or in a church's life, the blessing of God does not reside on that person or that church. And the worst part about it is the witness to the community, to the loss, is weakened. It's harmed. And we have to love Jesus and love the lost more than we like not being offended in order to show Christ to the world. So how do we do it? Two quick things. First, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to allow him to direct everything we do. Not just just as a church, but as, as an individual believer. What we do should be governed by what we read in Scripture. This is our authority. This is our playbook. This tells me how I ought to live. This tells me how to glorify God. It's the number one way I can keep my eyes on Jesus is to keep my eyes in his word. Psalm 119, 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If I want to know Jesus, I got to get in his word. If I want to live a life that glorifies Jesus, I find out how here. If I want to be able to go out and share the gospel with somebody, this tells me how. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Understand that it is God who is our judge, not other people. The second thing I want to say is this. It's necessary for you to be in a discipleship group. We have been talking about this since December. That every believer ought to be involved in three distinct groups. Number one, it's corporate worship. Okay, you're already part there. Okay, you're here. Jesus preached to the many. We then need to get another step. Remember, Jesus preached to many, but how many disciples did he have? Or apostles? Twelve, right? Okay. This is Sunday school. This is Bible study. I, I, I want to encourage you, if you are not involved in a Sunday school class or a small group Bible study, take that step this week. It's where you get to know God's word more. It's where you get to know God's people more. But then take that third step. Out of that 12, Jesus had three. James, Peter, and John, right? Jesus poured into those three more than the others. We see those three throughout the remaining pages in the New Testament. 
This is the discipleship group, or what we call core groups. What is a core group? It's a group of three to five people of the same sex, so men with men, women with women, who intentionally meet once a week for about an hour for the purposes of talking about the scripture they're reading, of praying together, of memorizing scripture together, and yes, holding one another accountable for our lives. If you were to ask my thoughts on why most Christians never grow to the full potential that God has for them, I would say because we stop short of true accountability. Good news is we've got men and women who are already trained in how to do these core groups. There are some that are started. If you're going, you know what, I need to get into one of these, these groups because I want to follow Jesus. I'm not trying to follow a program of a church. I want to follow Jesus. We're going to do another training Sunday, April 14th at, at 3 o'clock. You can let me know but before you leave or over the next week, hey, I want to be a part of it. And we'll show you exactly how the, these core groups go. I'm going to go ahead and tell you they're laid out right in Scripture. But as we prepare to move into the next part of the service, one thing we talk about a lot here is this. What's the next step? Now take it. For some of you this morning, you have never trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save you. You've never surrendered your heart to him. You are still the Lord of your life. You're still calling the shots. And so your step this morning is very simply this. You need to confess your sin and trust that Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. And he's the only way to be saved. That's the step you must take today. For some of you, the next step is this. You've surrendered to the gospel, but you've never submitted to believer's baptism. That's the step you need to take. For some of you, you're regular in worship, but you're not involved in a Bible study. Your step is Bible study. You could, we could talk right after service. Their classes meet all over this building, starting 945 every week. We have a Wednesday morning group that meets down at Bojangles at, at Lake Watch. Uh, soon probably meeting in a new location. But to get involved in that. For some of you, it's time to get into a discipleship group so that men and women will hold you accountable and you will be the man or the woman that God has called you to be. I don't know what your next step is. But whatever it is, let's take it together. Would you stand as we're going to pray? Father God, as we uh, continue to move along in a time of worship, we thank you for the blessing and the privilege that it is to be able to worship you and, and to come together and to sing songs of praise to you. And to be able to hear your word. And sometimes, Lord, your, your word can lay a little heavy on our hearts. But it's because it's what's needed for our soul. And so, Father, I have no idea what you have said to those who are in this room this morning. But God, I am confident that you have spoken.
simply because of the promise of Scripture. That as the Word of God goes out, it will not return void, but it will accomplish what you desire it to. And so, Lord, I, we know that your ultimate desire is for a sinner to turn from their sin and trust in you to be saved. And so, God, we pray for those who need to be saved today that they would cry out from their heart even now that today would be that day of salvation. But Lord, there's other things that you may be saying to those who are here. So Lord, I pray that they would simply respond in love and obedience to you. That we would be the men and women, that we would be the church you have called us to be, and we'll thank you for what you have done and what you're going to do in our lives, in our families, and in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. As you continue to stand, we're going to sing one more song. And uh, you can come up here and pray at the altar, pray at the front uh, pew. I'll be on one side. Pastor Harry's going to be on the other. If you want us to pray with you, let's just respond to God. Let's take that next step.